Alive multivitamins and minerals give you all the nutrients you need for a well-nourished life. Made with a blend of 26 fruits and vegetables and suitable for vegetarians. There's a range of targeted solutions for the whole family. Get more out of life with Alive. Available in selected Holland and Barrett stores and online. Food supplements should not be used as a substitute for a varied balanced diet and healthy lifestyle. Hi, I'm Gemma Newman, your host for The Wellness Edit with Holland and Barrett and author of The Plant Power Doctor coming out in January 2021. In this episode of our brand new podcast, we're going to be talking about sleep. We all need it, but how do we know if we're getting enough? And more importantly, how can we sleep better tonight? Joining me today to help us answer these important questions are Dr. Guy Meadows, co-founder of The Sleep School and author of the sleep book, How to Sleep Well Every Night. And we have Narina Ramlakan, physiologist and sleep therapist and author of Tired But Wired, How to Overcome Your Sleep Problems, Fast Asleep, Wide Awake and The Little Book of Sleep. Hello. Hi, Guy. Hi, Narina. How are you? Hello. Hello. <laughs> it's so good to have you here with me today. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about this topic, which is something I think that we all need to know a lot more about. Um, so I guess we should just get started. And I'm going to ask both of you, but I'll start with Narina. Why is it that sleep is so important? Yeah, well, Gemma, I've been helping people to sleep for over 25 years, as well as working on my own sleep for many decades, and I refuse to give my age away. But um, so my work with with well people who can't sleep as well as 10 years in psychiatry has certainly led me to believe that, you know, sleep is so important for our health on so many levels, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, I believe, you know, I, I think it gives us our joie de vivre, our, our, our ability to wake up in the morning and feel happy and inspired. And, and when we're not getting good sleep, it starts to erode our health. Mm. And um, it can affect us, uh, our ability to focus, to concentrate. It affects the quality of our relationships. It affects our physical health as well. It's incredibly important. There's a reason why nature has designed us to spend a third of our lives sleeping, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at the moment we're, we're really living through a time that's unprecedented in history in terms of the amount of sleep that we're getting, or should I say the lack of it. Um, what about you, Guy? What do you think is so important about sleep and why? Why is it so important for us? Well, I think, you know, as Marina just pointed out, I mean, it affects pretty much every aspect of our daily lives, whether that be our mental, emotional and physical health. But I really love drilling into that, that idea that we spend a third of our lives sleeping. Because if, if, you, if you sort of work out the numbers, that is, you know, that's 27 and a half years for the average, you know, so the average age expectancy, life expectancy in the UK is about 80 years. So that means 27 years of our life will be dedicated to sleep. Now, the average person only spends... 11 years of their life working. So it suddenly tells us that, you know, sleep is fundamental. It's incredible. It's what makes us brilliant during the day. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, obviously I've been working in sleep for 20 years and, you know, I would say I'm a big advocate of it and uh, making sure that people can get the most of it. Wow, that's so interesting. What led you to this passion of, in sleep? Why, why did you suddenly feel drawn to it 20 years ago? 
Well, that, that's quite a sort of a, a random story. I will shorten it down into, um, I was very interested in lack of oxygen on the brain. And I was um, doing a lot of research sort of up mountains, um, looking at sort of uh, acute mountain sickness and, you know, sort of how, how to acclimatize people to hypoxia. And I realized I wanted to do something more clinical and at the time, I'd heard that people, um, uh, people at Imperial College were interested in the same sort of area of brain blood flow as I was, uh, except they were working in sleep and in specifically in an area, a, a disorder called sleep apnea and where people stop breathing at night. And that's, uh, that's basically was my routine. Wow. How interesting. And Narina, I've got to ask you the question now. You mentioned your history in psychiatry. Has that been something that, that kind of brought you to sleep or what was the main passion for you, the driving you in this direction? Uh, not being able to sleep myself. Right. Uh, yes. You know, as a baby, I was being taken. Um, my mother, in desperation, was taking me from one doctor to the next because I couldn't sleep. And mm. that continued through to my 30s. And in my 30s, I got very ill mm. and um, ended up being hospitalized. And um, not being able to sleep was a big part of it. It wasn't the cause of the, the primary cause of the illness, but it was certainly a big part of it, not being able to sleep well. Um, I just didn't get that natural innate healing that we're, you know, we're all designed to, to have if we're, if we're sleeping well. And it was all, it was kind of magical the way it happened because I never set out to be a sleep expert, you know, for my doctorate. I, I studied at a very sort of cellular level what happens in the brain when we're sleeping or not sleeping. Um, but I wasn't really aiming to become a sleep expert working with real life human beings. But I, I ended up in the city in Moorgate working with um, professional, you know, lawyers, bankers, professional services firms. A lot of them couldn't sleep. This was, you know, when technology landed on the scene. So while I started healing my sleep problems, I started being given opportunities to, to talk to other people about their sleep problems and then ended up being headhunted to work at this clinic um, and realizing that I really did have something to say about, yes. about sleep. Um, so I was kind of, I, I was guided in this direction. I didn't really look for it to happen, um, but I'm definitely passionate about helping people to sleep well. Yes, I think sometimes that happens, you know, when there's a certain passion and you have that experience, it's just wonderful to be able to use it. And I think it's certainly a way of sharing that compassionate approach with other, other people. I know that when we've suffered ourselves, sometimes it's it's a lot easier to understand um, these difficulties and how best to approach them. So I love hearing that side of your story. Thank you so much. Um, and so, Guy, hearing more about your story and your history with regards to um, hypoxic brain injury and then moving on to sleep apnea, um, what actually happens then to our bodies when we sleep, Guy? Yeah, I think this is a, a, a really good place to begin because sleep does so many things. And actually, one way to break it up is to, is to say, okay, well, what happens in the short term and what happens in the long term? Because in the short term, you know, right now, as a result of hopefully some sleep last night, we are, you know, we are able to do so many mental functions, which is one of the sort of the greatest benefits of sleep in the short term. We're able to be focused and attentive. We're able to hopefully answer your questions. To, to, You're doing well, um, guys. You're doing Maybe, well. <laughs> you know, sort of uh, uh, solve some problems along the way, you know, be creative, motivated, all of that kind of stuff. And so a good night's sleep is enabling our brain. It helps to preserve our prefrontal cortex, which is that sort of higher order executive function part of the brain. Um, 
And then another really important thing that it does in the short term is it also helps to balance out our moods as well. So we all know that, you know, if you hadn't, if you don't get a, a good night's sleep, we can be a little bit more grumpy and irritable, for example. So it's helping to do that. But mm. then in the long term, it's, uh, that's what you know, we're now beginning to understand more and more of. And certainly over the last couple of decades, we've discovered that you know, it's helping to keep our hearts healthy. It's helping to lower our blood pressure. It's helping to manage our appetites. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of um, it not only helps us on a daily basis to be focused and attentive and perform, but also in that long term as well. And I think also it's really important to note, you mentioned long-term health. Tell me a bit more about the research around sleep and dementia. Yeah, so I think this is a really lovely area where, um, again, it's sort of unfolded over the last decade where um, some research came out where they discovered the glymphatic system, whereby we have these small channels which open up in the brain during the nighttime and they are flushing out the neurotoxins. So these, these chemicals that are building up just as a product of doing, again, what we're doing right now, just, you know, sort of thinking, et cetera, being. And some of these toxins, like the beta amyloid proteins, for example, um, gained a lot of traction because we know that beta amyloid plaques increase our risk of Alzheimer's. And so it appeared that a degradation of these systems as we got older could be responsible for increasing uh, our risk of Alzheimer's. And mm. so sleep seems to be, play this really crucial role in helping our brain every single night to sort of clear itself to wash itself of toxins that build up during the day mm, that's really interesting i remember reading about um margaret thatcher and ronald reagan good friends that they were both eschewing sleep saying you know i'll sleep when i'm dead and they would both um revel in being able to stay up at night and work and only having about four hours sleep is is the anecdote at least I'd, that's just me sort of remembering it from the top of my head but it does really cause me to reflect on you know that real world example of how we almost disrespect the idea of sleep it's considered to be perhaps lazy or wasting our time when in actual fact it's as you have both pointed out, serving a really important physiological function. Yeah. Actually, I think a really important point about what you said there is, and, and Nirina touched on about, you know, sort of working with corporates, for example, and, and, and we've worked with corporates for many years now. And the really interesting, and I could say um, pleasing factor is that over the last, say 10 years, we have seen a shift away from that sleeping is cheating to, to, to this realization that, you know, I, and I, I don't like this term, but there's this, this, the corporate athlete term where, where people are now seeing that actually, you know, I, I want to get good sleep. I want to eat well. I want to move well so that I can perform at my best. And so I think those old sentiments uh, are, you know, that they're being shelved and people are becoming more aware as a result of podcasts like this, for example. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And I think, you know, when I started doing, going into companies and delivering presentations, because people were burning out, people were getting stressed. So there was a realization that they needed to do something about it and that there was an, sleep was important, but the doors were still a little bit closed. And, uh, but as Guy has said, absolutely in the last particularly in the last few years, the doors are opening. And now in the pandemic, it's mm -hmm. definitely changed um, in, a, in a slightly, I'd say, well, slightly parasitic way. I've probably never been busier um, in terms of delivering uh, mental health presentations, but sleep 
sessions as well online. Um, but I also think that, and uh, one of the things that I'm very, a message I'm very keen to put out there as well in my work, and I do it all the time, I did it in a recent TEDx as well, is that we need to think about not just what we're doing at night when we go to bed, but we need to think about building recovery into the day and building rest into the day. In fact, my TEDx is called Come to Work and Rest, because we cannot just rely, you know, on seven or eight hours of sleep and this amazing process that takes place in the brain and the body. You know, it is magical, this thing that we spend a third of our lives doing. But we also need to look at our waking hours as well. And I believe that one of the reasons the sleep industry has, has just, it's huge, is because we've become so restless as a society, that we think it's all going to be put, you know, we're going to sort it all out if we go to bed at night and sleep. And actually, it doesn't matter how, you know, your blackout blinds, the thread count of your, of your sheets, how amazing your bed is and your lovely candles, you need to think about what you're doing in your waking hours as well. And certainly in the corporate mm. environment, you know, people working from home now, and I'm seeing more mm. burnout issues it is about sleep, but it's, it's not really just about sleep. It's a really good point. Well made, Noreena. I really like that you've brought that up because it's not only the fact that we are essentially often starving ourselves from sleep, but it's also the inability of us to mm. be able to switch off. And I imagine, as you said, when people are working more from home, they're constantly thinking about work, looking at emails, looking at messages, responding to tasks, and it then becomes something that's never ending. Whereas even up until the 1990s, you could very clearly leave work at work and go home and there was a very different mindset. So that's a really important point to consider. And you also talked about the the fact that during the pandemic, if anything, you've just been busier than ever. And, you know, I, I would relate that personally in my experience to certainly with my patients, this increasing sense of anxiety that people are having at the moment, which has kind of gone hand yes. in hand with yeah. some sleep issues. I'd really like if you could, Narina, sort of expand on whether you have noticed or whether in your experience people have had more sleep issues over this last year um, and you know what kind of effect that um, pandemic anxiety or anxiety in general can have on sleep. Yeah, so um, where do I start with this? Well, let's just talk about the trends that I picked up throughout the pandemic. So, you know, when we went into the pandemic, I thought, great, I'll work on the fourth book because I might not be working for a while. And then actually it all went crazy and I got even busier. Um, and so every session that, that I deliver, I do a, a pulse check and often I'll do a, a little survey before the, the session. And I saw people going through waves of changes. So we had a lot of fear at, at the beginning, fear and anxiety. And then people started to settle. I started to notice a bit more people saying, actually, you've got more time with the family um, or if, if they weren't in isolation. Well, some people were also starting to um, go through grief and worry because they had relatives who were ill. You know, so there's sort of waves of change. And then it all settled out. And there, I noticed there was a phase where people said they were sleeping a bit better or if they weren't sleeping so well they weren't quite so worried about it because they were working from home and they could perhaps adapt a little bit and this was maybe a third of the way into into lockdown I noticed a change in that now we're going through another phase of people feeling uncertain and anxious again because you know we're going into winter people don't it's, we don't have clear guidelines as to what's happening people went back to work and then they had to go back home again and so they're working from home so the anxiety levels are mounting up again and um, so I've noticed, again, it's, it's the corporate market has, has increased with more de demand for these, these sorts of sessions. Um, my belief, 
and this is substantiated, not just my personal experience, but professional experience as well. My belief is that we sleep when we feel safe. If you look at the, the physiology of the nervous system, you know, just very simply the parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system. If we're carrying anxiety, uncertainty, worry, if on some level we don't feel safe, we feel we're in some kind of survival situation, we don't have as, as uh, that ease of access to the parasympathetic. So sleep and safety mm. go hand in hand. So being able to sleep well, sleep deeply, you know, we need to feel that even if there is stuff going on in the world, fundamentally inside, we're okay. And if we don't feel okay inside, if we're feeling anxious, afraid, worried, uncertain, that can affect our sleep and our ability mm. to get good deep oh, That's sleep. really well put. You've got the, the rest and renew parasympathetic nervous system, and then you've got that fight or flight sympathetic nervous system. And if somebody's feeling overly anxious um, or unsafe, then it's it's harder to access that uh, that side of themselves. And, and Guy, what are your thoughts on how anxiety can affect the body and affect your ability to sleep yeah i mean we know this firsthand because i um i i specialize in in chronic insomnia and in our clinic and you know we, we all often say that insomnia hangs out on the same street corner as you know sort of anxiety sort of depression stress you know the, the obsessive compulsive disorder those kind of uh, tendencies and conditions and if, if we look if we you know sort of put the clinical aspect aside and we go what, what's the number one thing that keeps people awake at night and we'll know that it's rumination it's just the, the, a busy mind it's you know and and that's um that happens for so many reasons these days one because these days we have we're just super busy and and so we you know we're, we're busy all the way up to getting into bed and you know we're on our mobile phones you know or whatever it may be we close our eyes we turn out the light and then suddenly our mind just sort of races and that's often because that there's a part of our brain called our default mode network which hasn't had time to sort of process in the day because we've kind of haven't we we've lost that time for sort of just being you know sort of taking time out and then you suddenly have a pandemic thrown on top of that which just sort of puts that uh, worrisome part of our brain into overdrive and, and that instantly means that you know sort of how we respond to that that sort of worrisome brain is is often a big part of the problem and what we do we don't like being you know sort of experiencing a worrisome brain we don't like having lots of thoughts and what we try to do is block them out or suppress them and everyone who comes to our sessions you know i will ask them you know sort of so you know have you been awake in the middle of the night or at the beginning of the night you know with a racing mind what have you done and they'll say well i tried to block them and, and you go well how did that get on and they'll go not very well um and and typically it's you know well it came the, the thought came back in stronger but it brought its friends in with it as well <laughs> and um and so often how we go about managing our sort of anxious worrisome brain is really crucial and you know the sort of uh, i'm sure we'll come on to talk about this but the you know the 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 unfortunate issue is that most of us try to block it, suppress it, get rid of it. And actually by learning to sort of notice it, observe it, let go of it, we can transform the way we relate to it. And we can, you know, we can be experiencing a pandemic, but perhaps not um, uh, have it take us away so much with it, not you know, feel so caught mm. up in it and allow ourselves to fall asleep. 
Hmm. I really like the way that you've put that guy, you know, relax, observe, be aware. Um, and suppression clearly does not le- lead to the best night's sleep because then those thoughts just keep popping up in the middle of the night when you really want to be asleep. So I really like the way that you've integrated that. And I think that that's also key to a lot of philosophical um, approaches to, to health in general, mindfulness and meditation. Although I imagine some people would find it quite hard to start a meditation practice when they've got this racing mind. Um, I guess we could come on to that in a moment. Um, but I, I just find it fascinating that what you said is actually, it's not just about trying to think of ways to help you fall asleep at the end of the day. It's the things that you do throughout the day. And it's the things that you feel throughout the day that can actually have some of the biggest impacts on sleep. So that's been a really useful thing that you both have actually brought today to, to for us to talk about. So I really like that. Um, And we've also, earlier in the discussion, we talked about some of the side effects you might start feeling if you're not getting enough sleep. Some people will feel, as you say, unable to concentrate, um, grumpy, um, brain fog. Is there anything else that that, um, you think people could uh, experience as a result of not getting enough sleep, Guy? Well, one that's always uh, fascinated me, and I think is you know so definitely more in uh, your realm, is the impact of poor sleep on our appetite. And it's it's always been you know, and, and I do this. With, you know, we run lots of, uh, sort of workshops, etc. And we'll always ask people, you know, if you've had a poor night of sleep, what happens to your appetite? And you know, the majority of people say yes. It, you know, it increases. And sadly, it's not increasing for a salad. Um, <laughs> you know, it's increasing for. The, the, the stuff that we don't want to be eating, you know, the, those sort of sugary, sweet, you know, carbohydrate-based uh, snacks and chocolate, you know, all the stuff which we really, you know, want to eat but is not particularly good for us. And, and that's, you know, and so that's fascinated me because, and it's, it is that, you know, disruption of your two appetite hormones, leptin and ghrelin. So we get, you know, an increase in ghrelin making us want to eat more and a reduction in leptin sort of suppressing our, our uh, satiety. Mm. So... Yeah, so, so that that's um, the, you know one of the fascinating ones, but also our, our mood as well. Um, mm. I, I think you know, and I certainly know this. If I have a poor night of sleep, I am you know more irritable and more sort of short-tempered and grumpy. Yeah. Absolutely. And you, as you say about, about craving, you know, nobody's going to be craving a, a broccoli salad when they've had a poor night's sleep, are they? It's the same <laughs> sort of thing. We all have a lot on our minds at the moment, which can have a big impact on our ability to get a good night's sleep. So if you're struggling, why not try Night Herb, a traditional herbal remedy made with valerian root, which helps promote sleep so you wake up refreshed and ready to take on a new day. Night Herb, a natural solution to a good night's sleep. Available in selected Holland and Barrett stores and online. Night Herb is a traditional herbal medicine used for the temporary relief of sleep disturbances due to mild anxiety. Exclusively based on traditional use. Always read the label. And Narina, it would be really good to hear from you. We talked about how important this is and how it can affect us when we don't get enough. How do you feel people differ between each other and how much sleep they need? Is it that everybody needs to have a certain amount or do different people have different amounts that they need? You can Google sleep amounts and people talk about, you know, seven or eight hours of sleep a night. And that's definitely a good number to hit for. But I think 
One of the things I love about doing the work that I do is, is exploring everyone's unique relationship with sleep. And I think we are all unique. And um, if I had to generalize, I'd say that, you know, while we all do need to be getting good sleep, we're remarkably adaptable as well. And one of the things I like to reassure my clients about is the fact that if they've got something important happening the next day and they don't sleep so well the night before, actually we're more resourceful than we think we are. And sometimes it's the belief that not getting those seven or eight hours of sleep, um, the belief that it's going to impact on our performance, that's what uh, affects our performance the next day in the first place. So we're more resourceful than, than we believe. Some people do need more sleep than others. And I have studied a little bit of the, the ancient sciences, Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine. When, you know, we don't have to talk about that necessarily on this call, but when you go into some of those sciences, even you look at people's the different types uh, of physiology, there are some people who genuinely need more sleep than others. Now, if I have a bad night's sleep, I'm actually great. The next, I'm, I'm fine the next day. You know, I used to run marathons all the time. I used to be a triathlete and I, you know, often wouldn't sleep that well before a marathon, but I'd be absolutely fine. I'd do sometimes a PB the next day. But if it keeps going on and on and on, then it can start to have an impact on our health. So what I encourage my clients to do is to start listening more deeply to how they feel. Start paying attention to your Achilles heels, if you like. So we all, you talked about symptoms. We all have a thing that happens when we get run down, whether it's the cold sores or the throat things or the more, more colds or, you know, migraines or whatever. Pay attention to what happens to you when you're not, you feel you're not getting enough sleep. And that's the thing mm. that's probably going to pop up. And then you'll start to become more attuned to how much sleep you really mm. do need. You know, what is good for you? There are times when we need more. There are times where we can get by on less. The key thing is how are you feeling in yourself the next day, mentally, physically, emotionally? Right. So it's about taking an inventory and uh, each person is unique in terms of how they respond to poor sleep and, and how long it can go on for before they start to feel symptoms. Yeah, because I think a lot of people, you know, people love measuring their sleep as well. And that's probably a conversation that we could we could have today. You know, is it a useful thing to do? And in my experience, there are certain people, often the people who come to see me who are having sleep problems, who are more anxious, more obsessive, more perfectionistic. Um, you know, your typical sort of uh, magic circle law firm type employer employee. You know, they probably shouldn't be measuring their sleep mm. because that's you know, but but encouraging them more to listen, listen to the body. How are you actually feeling? What are your energy levels like? Even if you didn't sleep that well the night before, it's probably more useful. Okay. So more useful to, to be in tune with yourself rather than looking at a tracking app the whole time. Guy, tell me a bit more about the science um, behind whether you think different people need certain amounts of sleep. Is there, is there more science around that that you've been able to, um, to shed some light on for us? Yeah, I mean, what, what we do know is that, you know, how much sleep we need is determined by our genetics. And, you know, sort of th th there are some stats which say that about you know, 80% of us need that seven to eight hours. And that's why the vast majority, you know, that's why we hear that number so often. Um, but I think, you know, the crucial thing is that 97% of the population can be captured between that six and nine hours. And as, so as Narina was saying, you know, that, that just, it means there is this individual variation. Um, and we do know that some people have a, you know, sort of a, a rare genetic mutation, which means they need only as little as four hours, but, you know, they are incredibly rare. 
and I, I very much doubt they're um, in the numbers that we often see, you know, certain individuals in the, who are in the media saying, yes, I only need four hours, etc. Um, like you were talking about Margaret Thatcher, I think there's a lot of bravado, you know, still around that sort of number. But I think the crucial thing is, as Narina was sort of touching on there, is, is you know, a lot of people go, well, how do I know how much sleep is the right amount for me? And a really easy way to measure that is just to say, well, do I, did I wake up feeling refreshed this morning? You know, mm. so, and you, you don't need a sort of a genetic test to be able to sort of go, well, did I wake up feeling refreshed? Um, yes, I did. Great. So I'm probably getting the right amount of hours for me right now. Um, if I didn't, well, then was that because I cut my sleep short? Perhaps I was staying up a bit later watching Netflix or perhaps I couldn't actually get to sleep because I was worrying. Um, or is it because the, the, the quality of the sleep was reduced? And that comes back to our point about what you do during the day can influence how you sleep well at night. And it might be some of those daytime lifestyle factors, which could be reducing the quality of our sleep. So ultimately... It's about getting, uh, you know, sort of trying to get the, the right amount of sleep roughly for you every single day. Fabulous. And so that brings me on to another question. Is there really such a thing as night owls? <laughs> or is that just people wanting to stay up later and getting into a habit of doing so and therefore wanting to wake up later? Is that a thing in your experience or is there, is there some genetic basis to that in some people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we certainly do know that the, the study of sleep timing is what we call your chronotype. And according to the research, we have, we have evening people and we have morning people and about, and then we have daytime people and about 70% of us are sort of daytime. So we are very much sort of anchored in that, let's say 10.30, going to bed, to, you know, sort of sleeping 10.30 till 6.30. Some of us are, might be a little bit more advanced in our sleep phase. So we'll be called, we'll be the go to bed a little bit earlier, get up um, a little earlier. And some of us might be more delayed. I think one of the real challenges um, with this particular topic is we do know, certainly when it comes to the evening types, is that modern lifestyles can really influence it. And so with so many of us on our social media, you know, sort of, or, you know, just basically on a, some sort of light emitting device later at night, that can exaggerate that owl-like or evening type tendency. And actually, they did a lovely piece of research where they took people and they followed them in their lit up city life. And then they took them to the sort of Canadian Rockies, I think it was, and they monitored them. Uh, they, they controlled the light levels basically. So they were only allowed firelight and, um, and that and sunlight. And what they found very quickly within five days that those owl and lark tendencies, uh, the gap between them narrowed considerably. So, it, it, yes, they do exist, but they're probably pronounced by uh, or amplified by the way we live our lives. Right. So it's probably far less of us than we would imagine that are night owls, in fact. And what I'm interested in, you know, you've both alluded to the fact that we can have quite severe impacts when we don't sleep. Why is it then that some people seem to be worse off than others without sleep, Narina. Is there sort of a reason for that? Is that just genes in your experience or is there stress or is it something else going on as well? 
Well, you know, as Guy said, you know, there are some genetic influences as well in terms of our relationship with sleep. But there's also, I mean, I adopt with my work a very holistic approach. And I say sleep is only one way in which, you know, we, we get energy. Um, it's a very important aspect of our health and, and our well-being and our energy levels. We also need to look at, you know, um, other aspects, other things, you know, how we move, how we breathe, our nutrition, as you well know. And then we need to look at our emotional health and whether we're looking after ourselves emotionally with our relationships, um, what we're doing to manage our minds and whether we're nurturing our minds and living a life of purpose and meaning and feeding our creativity and our, our intellect. And so our relationship with sleep, uh, or our energy levels isn't just about how well we sleep. It's about our relationship with life. And so often I find with people, um, both in my corporate work and when I worked in psychiatry as well, when people are very wedded to this idea of I really need to get a good night's sleep, otherwise I just can't cope the next day. Often what I'll do is go, go in there and unpick the lifestyle and look at other things that are going on as well. And often there'll be things like just not getting enough exercise, not eating healthily, probably hating the work that they're doing. So everything gets lumped into this thing of, I really need to get my sleep. And when you start cleaning it all up, you, you can start seeing actually a, 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 a true reflection of what's, what's going on. So, um, you know, I guess if, to generalize, sleep is just one way of getting energy. It's mm. a very important way, but we need to look at our holistic lifestyle yeah. as well and you know just I really want to just make this one point because you know Guy you talked about nutrition and and I know this is an area of, of great interest for you as well Gemma in your, in your book which I'm really looking forward to reading um, but you know typically when people aren't sleeping well it affects their appetite but I've also noticed another pattern where people who are not sleeping well they wake up in the morning and they often don't feel like eating first thing so they want tea or coffee but they don't necessarily want food and then they'll eat, and then they'll eat a huge amount of the wrong thing. So an important part of my program is actually getting people to break that cycle in the morning within about half an hour. If they're waking up with anxiety and they're exhausted, start eating something really small, something healthy. I'm known for talking about eight almonds and two dates. But often this, what this does do is just circling back to your initial question is it breaks the, the, the over-reliance on sleep because mm. they think, oh, I really need my sleep because I wake up exhausted. But actually, sometimes it's a nutritional pattern that they need to break. Mm, that's really Something interesting. small, break the, the, the pattern of fatigue. Maybe then you'll have the energy to exercise. You won't need the caffeine. Mm. You'll sleep better. Do you see what I mean? I do. I see what you mean. And I think that what you said as well is really interesting psychologically. I think many people are now beginning to understand how important it is to get a good night's sleep, but then that gives them the additional anxiety. And then they put conditions on their life to say, if I don't get enough sleep tonight, I will suffer tomorrow. I will feel this. I will feel that. And then it becomes a very negative perpetuating cycle. So it's great to have that very practical tip, that very practical tool that someone can implement first thing in the morning. And and you know, going outside in nature first thing in the morning, looking up into the sky, being able to then activate serotonin and then therefore melatonin 12 hours later. These are all really practical things that you can do as soon as you wake up to make sure that you are actually continuing in that cycle the, the, way, the way you need to go on. So I, I really like that. Um, you mentioned also people that you work with in the workplace. Is it true that sleep is more difficult to come by as we age? Um, it can be, 
It can be, and certainly our, our sleep patterns, and, and Guy, you probably would talk more about the, the research behind this and how it changes as we get older and we start becoming more polyphasic with the elderly having more sleep naps during the day as opposed to one sleep phase at night. But there's also the, the factor of, you know, of life events happening um, because often I work with I work with women who are suffering sleep problems going through their menopause and they'll think it's all about the hormones and there are hormonal changes, of course. But typically they'll be in those years, sandwich years, as they're called, you know, where you've got elderly parents, you've got children growing up and teenagers and, and all that sort of thing going on. So you've got all these life events which can really impact on sleep. And then you've trying to take your career forward at the same time, as well as at the aging physiology. So our sleep can change as we get older. But my, my philosophy is that we just need to take a, it really is about, I believe, a deeper sense of self-care and responsibility for ourselves mm. and listening more deeply to what is it that I now need? I'm no longer in my thirties or my forties. Uh, you know, what is it that I now need to look after myself so that I can be as well rested as, as I, as I, as I want to be. Mm. Um, and I just personally, I gave up marathon running in my forties, realized that in my fifties, it probably wasn't the best thing for me. Um, and I adapt my exercise. I adapt my nutrition Mm. I adapt my caffeine intake. So I think our physiology changes. Mm, right, absolutely. And Guy, I'm sure you would be able to give us a little bit more information about what happens as we age. When we when we come into our um, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, what are our sleep needs and how can we best adapt to them? Well, I, th I think, you know, Noreen has covered a lot of really good points there around some of the, um, you know, factors which are happening in our lifestyles. And we certainly see that within our insomnia clinic around, especially around that uh, sort of a menopausal time. It's a, you know, it's a really challenging period, not just because of the, the sort of the actual physiology, but because of the life situation. But also, you know, certainly as the, as the decades, um, you know, increase, what we generally see is an increase in uh, sleep disturbing medical conditions, um, you know, sort of more physical discomfort and pain, um, mm. you know, arthritis, etc. Um, and that will cause sleep disturbance. We might also see you know, increased need for the toilet during the night, etc. So it, it's, you know, and this is always a question, you know, do, do old people, do we need less sleep as we get older? But, or is it just the fact that it becomes harder? Um, there was some research also, which came out quite recently, a couple of years ago, which said that um, as we age, um, galanin, one of the inhibitory neurotransmitters which is responsible for helping sleep that seems to be sort of less as we get older as well so it's kind of a mix of yes physiological factors are meaning we need perhaps less sleep but also it's just harder to get it as well mm. um, but as i think you know it, our, the way we live our lifestyles and, and you know, narina pointed out yeah, as we get a bit older suddenly we might start to sleep more during the day which reduces our drive for to sleep at night perhaps you know we're we're, there's less socializing going on um you know perhaps we're going to bed a bit earlier um there, there yes yeah, so, so we it's it is looking at that bigger picture as to you know sort of what's going on uh, but that's why i think coming back to what do i need as an individual and what can i do as an individual is really important brilliant and you know as as you've mentioned if you are in pain being able to deal with that in a very effective way will help if you are having issues with your urinary continence being able to deal with that will also help your sleep patterns so they're all connected aren't they, they are. um yeah so so this brings me on to thinking about 
myths and um, misconceptions around sleep. And I'd love to actually get both of your feedback on what you feel um, people have really got wrong about sleep and that you'd like to correct them on. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about that. I know you said that, you know, you've mentioned that it really is important to take a holistic approach, but is there anything that's commonly thought of that you often like to say to people, actually, hang on, this is the reality that we're dealing with. So let's start with Narina for that one. Yeah. Um, the, the myth about it, I shouldn't be waking up during the night. That's one that I'm often having to debunk and reassure people that, oh, okay, so you woke up at some point between two and four in the morning. Well done. You're normal. So, you know, there is even some research that shows that we're kind of biphasic. We sleep and then we wake up in the early hours, check the cave is safe, decide whether it's safe to go back to sleep. But people really worry about waking up during the night. Um, so I do. I spend a lot of time reassuring them. It's, it's normal. What isn't normal is to then look at your phone, um, look at, check the time, check the share prices, just dive into your social media. All of that stops you getting back to sleep. So it's re- reassuring them about that. I think another myth um, is that I can play catch up if I go to bed really late. I'll just sleep in and, and, and make up the sleep. And I think, you know, the old fashioned um, adage about the sleep before midnight, I think there is definitely something in that. Like getting to, there's a reason why um, all of the levels of neurotransmitters, neuropeptides change as the light levels drop below about um, 20 lux, is it, or 40 lux? I've just gone out of my head. As the light levels drop, you know, our biochemistry, our physiology says it's ideal to get to bed before midnight. But they're seeing so many people who are delaying their sleep phase. And what I see is it starts to present more burnout. So I think, you know, playing catch up over time, going to bed later, waking up later is not helpful for your health. Brilliant. Um, I think the inflexible belief that we absolutely need to get seven or eight hours of sleep, otherwise I will not cope the next day is not helpful. And we've talked about that already as well. Yeah, that's that we have. I, I like that you've brought up the fact that people think that they can just catch up on the weekend um, and that being actually incorrect. It's it's. It, am I right in saying that actually it's far more important physiologically to have a routine that you aim to stick to regardless of whether it's the weekend or a weekday? Is that right, Guy? A- absolutely. It's, you know, regularity is kind of like the number one, uh, I would say, piece of health advice that, that, that I could give, you know, sort of keeping our internal body clock on time, as in going to bed and getting up at the same time, eating at the roughly the same time, um, exposing yourself to light at the same time, moving the same time. That is just, you know, it's, it's, it's a gift for our internal biological systems. And actually coming back round to, you know, I think Noreen was talking about what happened when the pandemic first hit. One of the reasons why I think there was so much disruption um, in those first few months months uh, the first few weeks was because our our everyday routines got knocked out of cycle suddenly mm-hmm. most of us weren't commuting and then for good measure we threw in a clock change as well um <laughs> you know if that wasn't worse and bad enough you know and then we you know so suddenly people started shifting their bedtimes and their meal times etc so i think and but then things settled down a bit because they managed to get a, a little bit more of a routine so yeah coming back to your question um routine if you can go to bed and get up at roughly the same time every single day that's going to be better and so you know you talked a little bit earlier Narina about how you're not really sure that sleep apps are the way forward because people can become maybe obsessed with looking at the numbers and worry that they won't sleep is there any kind of um, benefit to using a sleep aid guy yeah I think this is a great question because you know obviously sleep tracking devices have become huge 
Um, and and I always say that my my um, my opinion is, is is you know is has got two parts to it. A pro the pros and the cons. What we what we've absolutely seen is an increase in people's awareness of their sleeping habits. Um, and how they relate to their lifestyle habits as a result of using tracking devices. So when they've logged their caffeine, their alcohol, their stress, um, et cetera, in addition to tracking their sleep, they've gone, okay, well, when I had, you know, sort of, um, you know, too much to drink and my sleep was really bad. Okay. So that, that's, that's helped me to understand. And so they help to sort of navigate perhaps healthier um, daily behavior which improves nighttime sleep. So I think that's, that's a real positive. Where the challenge is, is the uh, one, there isn't a huge amount of research um, out there suggesting their actual accuracy. And because often they don't put themselves up for sort of, uh, you know, black, randomized controlled trials. Um, we often don't know what the actual algorithm that they're using is, you know, is actually measuring. And, um, and then when they have actually put themselves up for sort of measurement against say full polysomnography, then it's actually come out. It's, it's, it shows they're actually not that accurate. They're not clinical grade. And, and, and as Narina touched on, you know, what we now have a new sleep disorder, orthoinsomnia, where, you know, sort of obsessive, um, well, increased sleep anxiety as a result of obsessive tracking. So, right. it's, you know, I, I'm exactly the same as Narina here in, in as much as, you know, use them, enjoy them, treat them as a little bit of fun. But if you feel that you're becoming, you know, sort of obsessed by it um, and it's the first thing you do in the morning, the last thing you do at night, perhaps you need a little holiday from your tracking device. Oh, I love that. Holiday from your tracking device. I think we could all probably do with a little bit of a holiday from our devices, couldn't we? Yeah. Um, Okay. Now this is where we get to the real nitty gritty. This is the bit I've been looking forward to asking you both about. I need to ask you your top tips for sleep. Now we have touched on this already. We've touched on things like the importance of avoiding alcohol as a nightcap, the importance of, that caffeine can play, the importance of holistic approaches. But what would your top tips, Narina, be for somebody that was struggling? Obviously it's an individual thing, but what would yeah. your top things be to, to say to anyone who was really struggling okay. with their sleep? Okay, if they're really struggling, I start with, uh, well, I'm, uh, my books, all of my books talk about this particular method that I use, which is I start with the five, I call it the non-negotiables, which sounds a little bit bullying, but um, anyway, we won't go into the history of why I call it the non-negotiables, but these are the five things that can really make a difference to people's sleep. And the first one is that small breakfast to break the fast within half an hour, 45 minutes of waking up. If you're waking up with exhaustion, the combination of exhaustion and anxiety, break the fast with something small and healthy, cutting back on caffeine and ideally no caffeine after three o'clock in the afternoon, if you're really sensitive to, to caffeine, increasing hydration levels to about two liters at least a day, getting your devices out of the bedroom. Your phone shouldn't be the last thing you look at before you go to bed. Ideally, shouldn't be the first thing that you look at first thing in the morning. So having some healthy boundaries around technology. And the fifth one, which is a little bit unusual, but I've noticed it can do something quite interesting. The fifth one is, is planning some early, you know, if you're real, especially if you're a late, you're a night owl, you don't like going to bed, you've got some bad habits, getting, making a date to go to bed earlier three or four nights a week. You don't have to be asleep, but off electronic devices, doing something that it could be meditation or journaling or a gratitude practice, um, but doing something restful and uplifting. So preparing your body, training your body to rest. These five things 
change my client's relationship. It, it does it resets the nervous system and then we can start to work deeper. So this is someone who's really struggling doing this for about 10 to 14 days. Really, I start to notice results results with their energy levels and their relationship with sleep. And then we go deeper with the real work, which is what is it that's really causing the anxiety, the uncertainty. And then we get into positive psychology, into gratitude work, you know, looking at the negativity bias of the brain and getting people to soak in nature you know, to, to do exercises, compassion exercises, kindness exercises, journey. That's where we're getting into the deep work. Mm-hmm. But the, those five things, those are the things that I usually start with if yeah. someone's struggling. Yeah. And if they're on sleeping tablets and we're trying to wean them off. Those are absolutely fantastic tips. And I was thinking about what you said with regard to spending the time, uh, making sure you decide to yourself, I'm going to go to bed earlier this night. I'm going to do something for me. Is it helpful to um, write down the things that you're worried about before you sleep? Absolutely. And Guy talked, um, you know, beautifully about the, the mind, the overthinking mind. And of course, you know, that tired but wired that people get so frazzled in the brain and it can be so difficult to stop that. But if you can just offload before you go to bed, write in a journal, then it makes it easier if you do then start doing things. Like I teach a lot of breathwork practices as well and somatic practices to get back into the body. But if you haven't unloaded your your mind before you go to bed, it's very difficult to distract yourself from those thoughts, as Guy said. Mm -hmm. So offload your mind, even if it's something like, you know, you're thinking about, I've got 10 million things to do tomorrow, get up and write a list, Mm -hmm. then get into bed. And then notice that the breathwork practice will help to to, to distract you, you know. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Noreena. That's really useful. And, and Guy, moving on to you, some of this stuff perhaps Noreena has already covered, but are there any fantastic top tips that you can give to our listeners to help them sleep better tonight? Absolutely. So I, I think obviously Noreena's ticked off some of the, the really important ones there. You know, just to build on that, uh, we've already mentioned it before, but it's so important going to bed and getting up at the same time every single day. It, it is kind of you know super basic. It's probably the most boring, but it's the most powerful. <laughs> Also, another one, and this is, you know, I, I think I often say I've got two, two hats. I kind of have a, a, the general public hat and I have a clinical hat. And um, so this is very much for the general public hat, where we know that 75% of the UK population aren't uh, reaching their biological sleep needs. So for, for those groups, it's about making sleep a priority. It's about realizing this is an incredibly powerful health providing performance enhancing tool that we can, we can, or behavior that we can do every single day. So ring fence it, make it a priority in your life, you know, sort of have one less Netflix episode or whatever it may be. Just see, see if you can, you know, sort of, um, and you know, if, if you don't sort of believe me, then go, okay, I'm going to do it for a couple of weeks. You know, I'm going to give myself 15 minutes, 30 minutes more sleep uh, for a couple of weeks and see how I feel. So your, gen- so, you- so your general public hat says, focus on sleep. And your clinical hat says, don't stress about sleep. Exactly. So, <laughs> so here's, here's my, the clinical side to that is um, the tagline in my book is, is uh, good sleepers do nothing. And, and, and th- this is because if you ask, you know, if you ask a good sleeper what they do to sleep, they'll tell you they do nothing. If you ask an insomniac, they'll give you a list as long as their arm. <laughs> and, and so 
what happens is suddenly when you're really struggling with sleep, that controlling part of your brain kicks in and it goes, right, I'm going to make my bedroom perfect. And so, you know, they've got the best bedrooms, they've got the best diets, you know, they've, they, and what's happening is they're lying in bed going, well, I ran a marathon today, I've done some meditation, you know, I've, <laughs> I've, I've done my gratitudes and I'm still wide, wide awake, what's wrong with me? And, and, and so this is where we, we've pioneered the use of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a, a sort of a newer form of CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, which basically teaches people to transform the way they relate to sleep. So rather than trying to, you know, well, rather than trying to control your sleep and force yourself to sleep, it's about having this more relaxed attitude towards it. Because the paradox is that when you allow it to be there, and you can use all the tools such as mindfulness, for example, to be in the present moment, to rest in bed, to accept your thoughts and feelings that are showing up. And so you change the relationship with all of that. Well, then you create the internal space, both mentally, physically, emotionally, from which sleep can naturally emerge. And it connects to what um, Narina mentioned perfectly was it basically switches off that fight or flight. It tells the brain, I am safe. Mm. And when the brain knows that you're safe, then, well, lo and behold, you're allowed to sleep. Is it advisable if you're waking up and you're starting to feel yourself anxious and you're starting to think, mm, I've been awake for five minutes, I've been awake for 10 minutes, I've been awake for 15 minutes. Is it the right thing to do to leave the bedroom or should you stay in the bedroom and keep trying to sleep? I'm smiling because this is a, a very good question. I, I, Narina and I might have differing opinions on this. So certainly traditional advice is there's something called the quarter hour rule, which if you've been awake for sort of, you know, sort of 15, 20 minutes, get out of bed and go and do something else. And, and I actually, through um, the use of traditional CBTI, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, I actually disagree with it. Um, and, and the reason for it is that, the, the, the rationale behind that is you don't want to be lying in bed struggling. And, and I completely agree with that because you, you, you'll end up associating the bed with worry and anxiety and that will sort of perpetuate that sort of um, that, that situation. But my point is, well, what do we get from actually getting out of bed? What if we could learn to lie in bed and get the benefits of resting and not struggle? And that's where we use acceptance and mindfulness-based principles to teach people to deal with the anxiety and the panic, um, to transform that relationship with bed where they see because we know from the research now you get a lot of benefit from actually just resting and mm. and for many of our clients what became the norm was they would lie there they'd be there for a few minutes and they go nope i've got to get out so the new association was getting out of bed and running around the house and so yeah i i'm a big fan of teaching people how to change their relationship with being awake and as nirina said that it's it's normal to wake in the night and right. uh, and 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 then that over time um, trains their brain to, to stay asleep. And can I just say, I completely agree with you. Okay. This is exactly what I say. Absolutely. I thought we were going to disagree. I thought you were going to say the opposite. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I work with my clients to do exactly as Guy has said, is, is to become more comfortable with resting and actually realizing they might be more asleep than they actually think they mm. are. Mm. even in, in, in that restful half awake sleep um, and teaching them techniques that help them to just drop down and be more restful, whether it's through breathing or a little bit of visual, visualization. I teach a meditation called, I love my left foot. 
and it, it helps them it helps people to fall asleep all the time because it's so boring is it something that you can share with us or will our read will our will our listeners fall asleep <laughs> go on, let's just have a little practice of it can we okay it's go really on. simple <laughs> so you do something so you need an internal voice which is one of those really irritating yoga voices yoga teacher voices in bali that sort of you thing that you're going to do for yourself okay <laughs> sorry but then you you basically you're lying there at, at night and you don't check the time so that's the other thing not checking the time you know that you are awake you now know it's normal to wake up you close your eyes go to the loo if you need to go to the loo you come back you close your eyes and then you just simply just you repeat silently i love my left foot I love my left big toe. I don't, you, your eyes aren't closed, but I'm, I'm hoping you're doing this mentally at least. I love my left big toe. I love my left little toe. I love my, all of the toes of my left foot. I love the bottom of my left foot. I love the top of my left foot. I love my left ankle. You can get really detailed. You can do all the bones in your left foot. You can do your bunions, your corns, whatever you want to do. But it's so boring. And then you'll suddenly start to find that you fall asleep. As soon as you fall asleep, you go back to the starting point again. I love my left foot. Um, And Guy, you probably have exercises, similar sorts of exercises. But the idea is get as far away from the monkey mind as possible. Go down to your foot. And... um, I love I that. I always go for my left foot for some reason. There I you think, go. I think that's great. It's it's definitely better than counting sheep and it it kind of allows the person to think more generously about their own body as well, which I think is absolutely, absolutely. wonderful. A, it's a trick one actually. And I often do that when I work with um schools where where children can be very hard on themselves and there's definitely not enough self-love so mm, yeah that's really wonderful and guy um you, i can see you are readying yourself to make a comment <laughs> yeah I, so I, what what are your thoughts on that and do you have your own special tips that you give to people i i would say the most important part of that for me what i like about that and you know for example in traditional sort of mindfulness you might use a body scan so it's, you know so it's not just left foot exclusive you might go through the whole body you know so um but the crucial thing is the intention behind it and and because for so many people the intention might be i'm doing this to get to sleep and as soon as you do that the, the important thing to remember is sleep is a natural biological process that you can't control and as soon as you place that emphasis it, it you know that just puts it up on a pedestal um and the brain is going well you know sort of narina told me to focus on my left foot and you know i'm still focusing on my left foot and it hasn't got me to that point so i think that crucial thing is is realization that we're doing it just to be in the moment to uh you know to, to help get ourselves distance ourselves from our monkey mind and mm. and the crucial thing is the monkey mind will come in and you notice it and you let it go and and often we teach our clients to be very friendly and uh, playful with our with the thoughts that are coming up they give them shorthand nicknames for example so that there'll be the coping thought if i don't sleep i won't be able to cope tomorrow so we reduce it down it's the coping thought or the performance thought i won't be able to perform tomorrow etc and so they'll they'll have a nice narrative where they'll go okay thanks coping thought good to see you back to the you know back to the body <laughs> um and and that's in a setting where they might have real you know anxiety real panic and, and the great thing about ACT is it is proven, uh, it has you know, sort of over 250 peer-reviewed um, papers um, and 30 meta-analyses, it proving it to be effective for depression, anxiety, trauma, et cetera. So it, it, it's the crucial thing I say is just the intention. And when you say ACT, is that an acronym for the acceptance therapy you talked about? Yeah, sorry, acceptance and commitment therapy, yes. 
acceptance and commitment therapy. That's really interesting. Um, so what about, what about light blocking glasses? Is that something you recommend for people? Blue light blockers, I should say. Yes. Uh, you know, as far as um, other simple tips that people could do, I would definitely say from two hours before start to darken down. Um, and one method they might do that is using blue light filter glasses. Um, but you know, my, my sort of one little bugbear around, you know, there's so much focus on blue light and actually um, our light sensitive cells in our eyes are sensitive to, you know, all light. Um, and actually it's about darkening down in general so keeping the lamps low in the house once it starts to get late exactly exactly from and and we know from the research the research is really cut and dry that two hours before going to bed you want to be darkening down so switching on the side lamps reducing down the brightness of our devices switching Mm. on the blue light filters putting on some blue light glasses if you want to simple things you can do so I guess it comes down to that element of not trying to control the sleep. You know, you mentioned if some people with clinical sleep issues, there's, there's a list as long as your arm of things that they're trying to do to take back control, whereas actually acceptance and making space for your most deep awareness of self is going to be a more useful strategy longer term. Yeah, that, that's basically it in a Mm. nutshell um everyone who comes to us is struggling so much you know they're putting in so much energy so much effort they're spending so much you know there's just and and what's happening is they're getting nothing in return and just sleep has been put up on this pedestal and it's like i can only sleep when i've done all of this Mm. and then you've got the person next to them who's literally (laughs) doing none of it and falling asleep instantly so it is about, you know, the, the first phase of our program is to discover, discover everything that you could be doing that could be getting in the way of your sleep. And a lot of it's the things which you've brought in as a result of that just natural human desire to want to control, which mm. is wonderful in everyday life. We're great problem solvers. But as I said, sleep is a natural biological process that we can't control. And mm. so it's learning to accept Uh, wakefulness often removes the obstacles in the way of sleep. That makes a lot of sense. And it really harks back to what Noreena was saying earlier as well. I love that you're both so much on the same page. And I also love your differing approaches because I think, you know, on the one hand, you've got a lot of clinical data. On the other hand, you've got holistic approaches that combine in just the most perfect way to help people really figure out how best to get you know, an effective sleep pattern that works for them. So I think that's really important. And Narina, what do you think some of the positives are for people? Like when, when you're starting to work with people and they're seeing real benefits, how do they notice it in their lives? And, and what positives have they managed to achieve once they've, um, once they've improved with their sleep? That's, that's such a lovely question, Gemma. Thank you for asking that. Mm-hmm. Um, I call this, um, in my, my second book, Fast Asleep Right Awake, I call this The Real Work, you know, capital R, capital W. So often when people come to see me and they're not sleeping and they're, they're really obsessing, understandably, about their, their inability to sleep and their exhaustion, and then we do the cleanup on it and we use all these tools and techniques and, and all this sort of thing, and they start sleeping better and feeling better. And then they come back to me and it's almost a kind of natural organic process where, you know, the first time I see them, I think, I know why you're not sleeping. You're really unhappy with your, with your job or really unhappy with your relationship. There's some big stuff going on there, but let's just get you feeling better. Let's get you more energized and sleeping better. 
feeling more rested. And then they come back to see me and they go, do you know what? I know they want to talk about their work or they want to talk about the relationship. Suddenly they're really addressing the thing that sits at the core of why they weren't sleeping in the first place, you know? So this is something that I see beautifully. I don't feel that I have to highlight, actually, maybe you need to go see a career coach or something, because often they don't have the, the resources to deal with it at that point. What they need is to be getting some good sleep, feeling better, feeling healthily, more healthy, then they can deal with it. So I would say that's really what I start to see is people start to find that they have the, the resilience to do the real work of life. You know, so I believe that that's why we've been given this 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 amazing process of sleep is that we can deal with with life and all of its challenges. Wow, the resilience to deal with the the real aspects of life. I really like that. And and Guy, what benefits have you seen for your clients and patients? I think it echoes what Narina said. The you know one of the first questions that we ask people when they come to the clinic is you know sort of uh, you know why do you want to come here? And it seems quite an obvious sort of question and people will go, well, it's fairly obvious. I want to sleep, <laughs> you know, and, and you go, oh, okay, right. Okay. So you, you want to sleep. And then you sort of dig a bit deeper and you go, actually the reason they want to sleep is so that they can move towards the things of value in their life. So they can, um, they can perform better at work. They can be the mum or dad that they want to be. They can you know, sort of manage their weight more effectively. And actually it's, it's the impact that not sleeping is having on those different areas of life that are so important to us. And so, mm. yeah, I mean, we get some incredible sort of uh, reviews, testimonials where, where people tell us, you know, literally learning to sleep again has transformed their life because it's just enabled them to go about their every day um, and, and move towards the stuff that's really important to all of us, mm. um, you know, our work, our families, you know, et cetera. So, yeah. Wow. You know what? That is such a lovely answer. And I feel as though today we have covered so much ground mm -hmm. and I feel like we've given people some really great practical tips and also some food for thought moving throughout their lives and hoping that they can create um, a better future with a, with a healthier relationship with sleep. So I thank you both so much for talking with me today. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you, Emma. And it was lovely to, to do this alongside you again, Guy. So, um, Likewise, likewise. Good to know we're so aligned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Dr. Guy Meadows and Dr. Narina Ramlakan for joining me today. Join me again for our next episode, where we'll be discussing how you can get more energy, particularly during these long winter months. For more health and wellness advice, visit the health hub at hollandandbarrett.com. All views are those of our guests and not Holland and Barrett unless explicitly stated otherwise. Any reference to brands and or products should not be considered as an endorsement.